I was fascinated speaking to a global head of Insight recently that that this particular client had included bravery within their mission for CMI because they felt that they had a, a, a role to be the customer's voice, to be a bit provocative with their organization. And this came up because this particular person was a judge for the Ginny Valentine Badge of Courage Awards, which is something that um, I set up uh, about six years ago. Um, and bravery isn't something that's been associated with our industry in the past because it's all about being safe, making sure that we don't make mistakes. Um, but actually, I was really encouraged to hear that because I do think that um, as an industry, we need to be representing people, their voice, and we need to be provocative. And those views need to be heard in organizations where it's so easy to just have a, a more blinkered perspective. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Squareholes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. There's no business like show business, and that at least partly explains how Fiona Blades grew up in a small village in the north of England, wanting to be a ballerina, studied drama and literature at university, and then went on to establish Mesh Experience in 2006, a global consumer insight agency with offices in London, New York, Sao Paulo, and Singapore. Mesh specialises in understanding people's experiences with brands within categories and across their behaviours, working with global icons including Unilever, GM and LG. Many people look at the products and services they use and think, I could do that better, but few ever do. Fiona was bold enough to take an outsider's perspective and develop a new approach to help businesses better use critical data to improve brand experiences online, offline, and in the real world. We discuss where Mesh grew from, Fiona's perspective on brands, culture, data, insight, and driving change when decision makers may have their blinkers on. This is a fascinating discussion, including the role of tech and data in understanding the lives of people, as well as the vital role of people thinking and reflecting to solve business and other complex problems. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thank you for joining me today, or us today, Fiona, uh, and, and welcome to Melbourne. So I'm going to start right at the beginning. Uh, what were you like as a young girl? <laughs> That's a very funny question. And I think probably like many young girls of my age, I wanted to be a ballerina. Is that, that was, right? <laughs> that was what I wanted to do. Um, but in fact, I ended up studying English and drama at London University. Yeah. Um, and it and was what drove that? Why, why did you want to study, it, why well, did you study I, English and drama? I did love acting. So I always enjoyed that. Um, 
And I loved Shakespeare and English literature. So that, um, and I was always encouraged by my parents to do what I liked. And if I did what I liked, I'd do well at it. Um, so that's what I did with no real sense of a career, mm. except that when I left university, I felt I wanted to get into the real world, whatever that was, and yeah. it ended up as sales. So, um, but obviously going into uh, literature and drama... You want you, the, the performing side, so the ballet performing. Is that right? Is yes, I, th- I think I did enjoy the, the performing. Um, and I remember um, m- many years later seeing on one of the cheaper airlines, one of the little boxes with the sandwiches with sayings on, business sayings, and one of them was, all business is show business. And I thought, oh, well, thank goodness for that. I know many people have MBAs and business studies and psychology degrees, but uh, maybe there was something in that English and drama degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but from my side, actually, it was the directing. And it was when I moved into marketing that I found those skills coming to the fore because, of course, uh, launching a new product is a bit like putting on, on a play. You're trying to bring a number of people together, um, different disciplines, different aspects. Um, and I suppose that's like running a company, actually. It is. That's right. Where did you grow up in, when you were a young girl? I grew up in the north of England yeah. um, in a village called Alderley Edge yeah. in Cheshire. A small town? Uh, it was, it was small, and it's where all the footballers now live if they, uh, right? if they, okay. if they are part of Manchester United. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, so what, what were the people like there when you were growing up? They were very warm people. Um, it has a different kind of feeling to London, which is where I went to university, where I met my husband, um, and really where I, I worked and had my professional career. But there's something about the people in the Northwest that is very open. They say what they think and very kind. And I have always loved going back there and seeing those people. Yeah, that's great. And you're based in... Where are you based now? That's a good question. I'm based in New York. You're based in New York. I thought so. So there we go. So so how did you go from the UK to to New York? What's that transition? That transition was due to mesh, actually. Um, And that's been one of the really fantastic and liberating things, I think, about setting up Mesh Experience and um, the journey that that that's taken me on. Um, And we had LG Electronics as one of our clients, and they were based in New Jersey. And um, from there, I could see that the States provided a really big opportunity for our kind of So you were based in, in the, where where were you based in the UK? So we started the business in London. Right. And we still have an office in London, and the business is domained in London. Um, But I thought that there was a big opportunity in the States. Um, And as a result, I moved over there and we set an office up in the States. Okay. So where did Mesh come from? You were saying before we got started that you weren't in market research necessarily before. Where did it come from? I was working at an agency called Clayton Healy, which was an Omnicom agency, and I was the planning director. And I was working on brands like Mercedes-Benz. And this was an integrated agency. So the work that we were doing was the direct marketing, the digital, um, the in-dealership display, those kind of things. And I knew that it wasn't just the TV ad that was making people buy a car. 
And it was all those other experiences. It was seeing Jeremy Clarkson on Top Gear talking about a car. It was seeing your neighbor's car and thinking, hey, I really like the look of that. Mm -hmm. So there were many other touch points that were influencing purchase. And I felt that we could capture those by asking people with their mobile phone, which was now back in 2005-06, to tell us and actually to text us with an SMS whenever they saw, heard, or experienced any touch points that related to a premium car. And I thought if you did that, you would pick up all the experiences which were creating a brand in someone's mind. And from that, you could work out which were the good ones and which were the ones you needed to get rid of. So um, that was my thinking. And I just thought, well... I'll give it a go. Mm. And that's what I did. So, so, so you're in agency advertising land. It was just, did it just percolate in your mind for a, a long period, rolling around, thinking this would be great, why don't I do this? Did you discuss it with other people to see what they thought as well? Or that's what's a, that gestation sort of, that, that goes into that idea of like thinking it through and then obviously you flicked it over and you actually started the business? It's a very good question and one I've thought about since I've set the business up. First of all, I think experience was always important to me, the notion of experience. And I remember at a previous agency, I developed something called the Brand Experience Workshop because when I was in advertising, everything was very much about the brand essence and the brand proposition. But I thought that there was something with a time dimension as well and that that was the experience. Um, So I think that that notion of time had always been interesting to me. Um, And as I say, I created a a particular workshop and a a brand experience score which articulated the emotions, the um, five senses over time for a brand. So it was a different way of looking at brands. Um, When I went to Clayton Healy, we were pitching for um, Pepsi, actually. So yeah. it's a big p- pitch going on. Back in 2001, so it was a long time ago, and we had, there was a, a market research agency that came in to present to myself and the other planners in my team. And they said, look what we've got. We've got this really funky thing. We've got a 1,000 young people on a panel, and we can text them now... And they will come back and tell us straight away who is going to be number one this week in the pop charts. Yep. Okay. And they were, this was back in 2001. We got the internet running in the, in the main conference room. We watched the results coming in. And this is 2001. And I'm going, oh, that is amazing. You know, you've got these young people. I tell you what, could we brief them a different way? Instead of sending out, a, is it A, B or C going to be number one? Could we ask them to tell us whenever they had a drink so that we know what they're drinking, who they're with, and what's going on? Mm. Because that would really help me for my pitch, basically. So we did that as a study back in 2001. And um, after that, I thought that there were two products. Uh, One was Ethnotext, which I thought was a very cool name, you know, ethnography through text, and Evaluatext, which was evaluating things. Now, I never did anything with it because, of course, I was a planning director. You know, I wasn't actually a researcher. But I knew that those two things could work. 
And as I was doing more and more work with clients and really missing data, I felt there was something there. Um, and I'd met somebody who did have a research agency who then became my business partner. He already was, was doing work. We, we'd done some uh, work together. It had won an award. And I said, okay, if that's won an award, let me tell you my other idea is this. And he said, okay, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Let's set up, let's set up a business. Yeah, okay. Did you discuss the idea with other people, like other I don't know, prospective clients and the likes to see what they they thought. I'm always interested in when you almost doing your own research and whether you were looking for positive endorsement or whether you got friction. Sometimes they say when an, when an idea gets a little bit of friction, it's probably a good idea because it's getting that. What, what about yourself? When you discussed it with people, did you get widespread, yes, this is a great idea, do it? Or did you keep it a little bit more private? It was, well, it was, it was fascinating because actually I, all, although I was doing this idea, putting the idea together. When I started, um, my business partner and I thought, we'll come up, trial the approach, sell it to a big agency for loads of money, (laughs) and I'll go back to being a planning director. So I didn't really think that I would be continuing 12 years later. I thought, a year, do that, go back to what I was doing. So I was still freelance. I managed to freelance as... um, uh, a, 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 as a planner, which was great for Mercedes-Benz, um, because it, it helped obviously keep me <laughs> supported while we were trying this new approach. We then piloted it, and then we went to one or two clients and agencies, and the response was very positive. So, first of all, the response was positive. Secondly, I realized that I knew what to do with the data. Thirdly, I realized that... Um, Actually, anyone else could copy it if they wanted because mm. we would, you know, we'd just put different things together. We'd put surveys with texts and things, mobile things, things like that. So I thought, well, why would anyone buy it? I want to do something with this. Um, so that was the, the journey we went on. But when we had launched, of course, we did have lots of issues around it. People were saying, well, should you be collecting data with a mobile phone? I mean... How do you ask the question? And I was saying, well, we don't write a question on the phone. What we're doing is we send a text with a code in it that says A Mercedes Benz, B Audi, C etc., A T V etc. So, and then we ask them to respond to that, and those texts go into an online diary, and then they can upload photos and comments and things like that. So actually, it was very much about data capture, which is where I'd come from, direct marketing, Mm -hmm. and getting information over time. So we were collecting this data from our participants over a period of a week, and we were reminding them and taking them along a journey. So it was a different type of data collection than a survey asking a series of questions. And where is Mesh now? How have you evolved to where you are today? Well, I think in terms of the evolution of where we've got to, some of the things are the, sta- are the same. So the core is still the same, which is that we really believe in experiences and that experiences create brands. Um, we have a mission, which is that we are here to help create and measure experiences that grow brands, people, and society. 
And that's what we want to do. We want to help marketers create more of the good experiences for customers and get rid of, rid of the bad ones. So fundamentally, nothing's changed. That's the same as we've always had, and we want to help them with their marketing investment. Um, of course, what has changed is that there are now smartphones. There weren't even smartphones when we set up. So some of the data collection methods have changed. Um, we operate globally. Um, we have offices uh, in London, New York, and Sao Paulo. But we also do work uh, over here in Australia, for example. We have continuous clients over here um, and in other parts of the world. Um, We've created a framework that we call experience-driven marketing. So today we think it's really important for marketers not just to understand and be responsible for the experiences that they create, as in paid media, but they also need to be cognizant of the owned and earned in, in order to know how to, to manage that. So, so we have a whole kind of approach and a model and all of those things. So we become kind of, I suppose, more sophisticated in our understanding based on the millions of experiences that we've, yeah, we've captured you, over time. Can you unpack that a bit further? What, what, are, the, um, what are some of the insights you observe across all of the, the study? So if you take a helicopter view of your, your research across the world, what, what do you see as some of the key patterns? Some of the things that have been interesting are that typically unmeasured, some of the unmeasured touch points, like uh, consuming a product, seeing somebody else eating, drinking, or using a product, retailer advertising, which features a brand. These are touch points that most clients are not measuring, and yet they can have a very significant impact on future brand consideration. So that's one thing I think that's important. Um, another is that we've correlated share of experience with share of market. Okay. So previous work wh where share of voice had been looked at in relation to market share and been shown to be significant and could be used for investment decisions. So if you had a 10% brand share, you might want a 15% share of voice. We found stronger correlations with share of experience, which includes not just the paid media, but the owned and earned. Okay. So it's all those experiences. And then the third thing is the quality of experiences. So um, a positive experience normally has around three times the impact of a neutral one on brand consideration. So we would urge our clients to look at the quantity of experiences that they're putting out there, but very much the quality so we say you need to look for engaged reach, not just reaching your Can you explain audience. a bit more, engaged reach? Yes. So we would say that um, there's one thing if you reach your target audience and they pick up the message, but it's no good if that's a negative uh, impression um, or even a neutral so what would one. So what would be an example of a negative impression? Um, it could be, for example, we work, we have a retail banking study in the UK, which is our own subscription model. And um, quite often in the news, there are things like branch closures. Okay. And that will have a negative impression when somebody has that. But there could be a very positive impression if they walk into a branch and a member of staff has been extremely pleasant to them and has helped them sort out something that they wanted. Yeah, okay. It's interesting. A lot of discussion around user experience focuses on 
online user experience, but your discussion is very much about the omnipresent experience online and offline, advertising, word of mouth and otherwise, isn't it really? It's, it's everywhere. It is, yeah. because what happens is it's almost like looking through the customer's eyes for a week and walking with them. And they walk past a branch, they then go online and do their banking app, they have a chat with their husband, um, they see a TV ad, they then might see a poster, then they read a negative article in the news. And we're just picking those things up in real time. And of course, there's a sequencing aspect to that. If you've just read something negatively, even the ad you like, you might not be responding uh, okay. to as positively. So if there's an ad on at the same time of bad media coverage, say about banks closing, like the, the negative almost over, uh, overwhelms the positive. Exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. And people can't say they hate the ad, so they're not going to say that. But what you notice is that a, f a lower proportion feel positive about it. Okay. So suddenly they just feel neutral yeah. about the same thing that they felt positive about yesterday. Yeah. There's a fair bit of work out there around that consumers don't buy brands with emotionally. They buy brands in a very rational, pragmatic way. What do you think about that? The, the idea of emotions in brands versus they're just buying a product that's very rational, very just buy it off a shelf, get a good price, that's it? I think people um, buy brands and products for different reasons. And going back to what you were just saying about negative PR, for example, if there's negative PR going on, but you've perhaps got a great product or a great rate or something like that, people might be prepared to overlook that and say, oh, I'll still, I'll still have that. I'll still get it while I can. But if there's something which is perhaps saying what a great brand that is, they're not buying that. Okay. They'll kind of go, uh, no, I've just seen what else is happening. Um, so I think clearly what, what, you know, what brands should be aspiring to is to be building brands, building trust. Um, but it doesn't mean that people won't buy if it's in their interest, mm. you know, it may be that they think, well, I, I, I don't really trust that brand, yeah. um, but I know if I, I can, I may as well get the product because I want it. So how does a, a brand build that trust? And there's, there's research out there, I think Elderton Index and a few studies like that that talk about trust and they talk about trust across corporate and government is often declining. What do you see as the, the key ingredients to building trust? Is it, is it transparency? Is it good positive experiences, as, as we're discussing? Yes. I mean, the way that we, we would look at it or perhaps be able to provide a, a fresh perspective is that um, before people tell us their experiences, they tell us their impressions of the brands. And then at the end of the week, after they've told us the experiences, they tell us the same impressions of the brands. So we can see if somebody's endorsed trust at the beginning and not at the end, or not at the beginning and at the end. And then we can start to unpick which experiences have eroded trust and which uh, have okay. grown trust. So we can get down to quite a granular level on that. Um, now, things like human interaction make a big difference. So anything where that has come into play, I, I think, is, is important. Um, 
There's also, I mean, we've, we've seen a difference between whether you trust a bank, for example, we're talking banks, to do the right thing um, versus reliability. So in the UK, one of the banks um, uh, had an issue where the Bank of England looked like they were, you know, that was going to need um, uh, help. And, but it was a much-loved brand. People n- kind of trusted their ethical approach. So it wasn't eroding trust as much as reliability. And people couldn't buy the product because they went, I just, I can't mm. because I don't know if they're going to be in existence or what's going to happen. But it didn't, it didn't erode the trust as much. Whereas other banks we've seen completely the other way around where people don't necessarily trust them, but they do think they'll still be around, so they may as well get the product. Okay. <laughs> what about uh, brands or businesses like supermarkets? We talked about banks where they're, they're pushing people away from... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> they're pushing people away from dealing with people to like say in the supermarket of having self-serve and does that where, where does that come fit in fit into the trust and the experience of, is it does not does dealing with people at a supermarket improve the experience or give a more positive experience obviously if the, the staff are, are positive or does it take the experience away uh, well it's interesting you, you, you're mentioning this because actually I'm going to talk about the retail revolution yeah, okay. this afternoon yeah. so um, I mean there has been and there is a massive transformation going on um, and I think that uh, retail is in terms of bricks and mortar needs to move away from being thought of as transactional and needs to move towards being experiential it needs to move away from it's just the place that delivers the sales to a brand building touch point um, because you've got the opportunity there to create a, a, an experience in three dimensions. You can taste a product, you can smell it, you can enjoy it, you can show how it should be used and eaten and all of those kind of things. You can create some fantastic experiences in bricks and mortar. So I think there needs to be a change in the way we think about um, retail. Um, But it's not to say that some of the online aspects can't also be very good at brand building. So what's been fascinating picking up the retail banking uh, touch points is how positively people are feeling about the mobile app. Mm-hmm. And what we're getting is comments like, I was getting the kids ready for school, I've just done two transactions, and it's making people feel like they're empowered, they can get on with their lives, and that's very different than if they'd had to be bothering to phone the branch, it wasn't going to be open, they'd have to somehow go into it later. That was a much more protracted mm-hmm. um, relationship. So having both access to real people... And being able to be facilitated to do stuff more quickly yeah, okay. is so technology allow takes away some of the pain points, but you still need people to add to that experience. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that, that's great. Cultural differences. So <clears throat> geographic cultural differences. You travel the world doing this. So how is the US different to the UK to South America? What, what, what do you see? Or, or Australia? What, what, what are the, the patterns? Um. 
There are some fascinating differences, actually. Uh, of course, everybody always talks about, um, you know, two nations divided by a language or whatever. The, the, the phrases with the U.S. and the, uh, the U.K. Um, and there have been some differences there in terms of um, the way market research is looked at. So from the U.K., uh, I'd come from a heritage which was very much around behavioral economics, um, thinking about the IPA and the amazing work uh, that they do with effectiveness awards, which have the advertising agencies um, putting together really fantastic case studies over a long period of time um, to evaluate uh, activity. And then the states being much more about neuro and uh, kind of uh, analytics. Um, you know, so it's got a different flavor. And what's great is when you can get both together or you can see both of those. So certainly there's a difference there from a, um, from a, a research perspective. Um, and the tech bit. I think comes through a bit more strongly um, in in the states. So, so the states are more attracted to new tech. Uh, you, you've got Silicon Valley. You've got you know a, a culture of tech. Okay. So you've got you know you've got the tech. You've got the data. You've got the analytics, um, the neuro, um, and actually, of course, it's a bigger market. So something like the Advertising Research Foundation measures participated in their ground truth experiments, and we've we've worked with our database to help. Um, uncover different truths uh, for, um, for, for, for the organization, um, there's more money to look and investigate things than there is, for example, um, in the UK. But from a business perspective, uh, I mean, Mesh is now certified as a woman-owned business. And I, I didn't even think about that until I went to the States. But over in the States, Diversity is, is, is clearly very important. I know it's becoming more important everywhere, so I'm not saying that that's not the case. But um, the, the infrastructure to become a diverse business and to be registered as that and that companies have policies to try to encourage more diverse suppliers um, onto their roster... Is, is, is slightly different from the UK. And the UK, it feels now, is, is, is catching up a bit. But it is still a different flavour. Okay. Uh, what about the differences in customer experience, expectations or needs? Do consumers in the US have different experience expectations to people in the UK or Australia? Um, I mean, one of the things, of course, with the US is it's so vast... <laughs> so, yeah. uh, actually, I think that the expectations in New York would be very different to the expectations, for example, in Atlanta. Um, we work with Delta Airlines and we work market by market. There are differences. There are differences in media. There are differences in, how, in, in the cultures between those different hubs. So I think that's the other thing which is, which is fascinating as well. It's, it, it's not just as simple as US, yeah. UK. Yeah. So, and it's, it's, so it's even segments within those different markets. So it's not, yes. a, it's not easy to generalise, well, the UK does this and the US does this. It depends on category. It depends on segment within that category yeah, yes that's, that's and really of course in the u.s uh you know particularly with the, the growth of, of hispanics um you need to be thinking much more about um different uh, cultures and ethnicities 
within the total market yeah. as well. So there are really a lot of differences, yes. Yeah. The appetite for consumer insights, do you get a sense oh, do you get a sense it's growing and, and what areas is it growing and, and how do, how have you had to change your I guess your your pitch from back in the early two thousands to now? Is it is uh, things have definitely changed. Um, I think the fact that Mobile is much more accepted as, as a data collection method. Um, uh, the rise of the amount of data that clients have got um, has changed the way we talk about things. So the way we think about what we do is that we have a unique data set that can fill a gap. So many clients are awash with data. They have loads of data, but it's in silos. You've got one data set, which is all about the TV advertising. You've got another, which is about pricing. You've got your social media. You've got all these different things. But by looking through the customer's eyes, you can actually unite those data sources because that's like the glue in the middle. Mm. So that's a big difference, I think, in in the way that we think about what we're doing. Um, I mean, going back to the cultural question, we've not talked about um, Latin America, and that's, that's again, very, very different. And I love the fact that we have uh, an office there because the, the clients, to me, seem to make more of less data, and they spend longer thinking about it. Uh, and there was some debate in, in the conference yesterday about, uh, are we needing everything so quickly? Yeah, you know, right. sh- should it be too much? And what I find in, um, in Latin America is that they do take a bit of time to stop and think. And I think they get more out of some of the data than maybe when we're really, really rushing to get things out in other parts of the world. Yeah, it's interesting. The appetite for an insight. So, first of all, what, what do you see as an insight? Like, we're the consumer insight sector, but I don't know, my 25 or so years in research been that discussion of can everybody be insightful what's an insight what do you think an insight is well there's a difference between a finding and an insight so i think a finding may be a piece of data that you know 24 percent of people say x that could be a finding but an insight is when that's allied with a business need that can actually then make an impact on the business. There needs to be a creative leap, um, which means that you need to be understanding what the business is looking for while you're looking at your data. And if we're thinking about things like artificial intelligence, for example, they can provide us with lots of findings. But having an insight i think is a human thing yeah, okay and do you, and the robots won't replace the humans at any point in the future or near future that you can see i think they will replace a lot of what we do yeah. and i think that's probably a good thing so once you have an insight if you know i mean for example one of the things that we we found for one of our clients um many years ago was that uh we could predict churn in their call center three weeks before it happened and the way we did that is we found that if we looked at their customers response to experiences coming in 
of their key competitor and they started to become very positive and very persuasive. It was three weeks later that we saw the churn. So once you know that, then you can automate. Mm-hmm. You know, once you've found that insight, you, know, you, you can automate that and you go, okay, so we know now how to, how to predict the churn um, and w- what to do about it. So I think it's a balance between the, um, the machines and the humans. Yeah. When you think about hypothetically or, or, or an actual situation of when I'm dealing with a client has, has provided a really great insight. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> Where does that come from? Is that, is that, is that, about, is that about having a, a friction between yourself and, and the decision makers? Is it about working collaboratively? Is it having cross-discipline people coming together to, to, to nut it out? What, what's the best way to get to a good insight? Um, you, well, you, you, you've reminded me of something that uh, I, I did a paper many years ago um, around return on investment. Um, how a challenging client demanded return on investment mm. and got it. And I went to see uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Professor Hugh Wilson at Cranfield School of Management. I said, Hugh, can you join us on this paper? I need to look at ROI. And he said, Fiona, suppliers never deliver ROI. I'm going, but Hugh, it's too, it's too late. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing the paper. He said, it is always co-created. And I've never forgotten that because it is. It's always co-created. It doesn't matter what findings or insights you have. If the business isn't ready to take them or hear them, it's, it, it's a complete and utter waste of time. Mm. So you always have to work very closely and collaboratively at certain points with your client because you've got to work out is this something that's worthwhile saying now to the business and if it is how are we going to best get that into the business to be actioned and those are difficult mm. questions you've almost got to seed it and they've got to they've got to own that don't they really yes. they've got to grab that and own it and it's almost a friction whether it's an internal internal consultants or external consultants to get insights or findings through to a decision maker is one of those challenges. They can, you can have all the right answers and it can be very, very clear, but until that decision-maker can, can pick up on that, it's, it's, it's nothing, really. And no. I, I would have thought for a lot of researchers that's the biggest frustration. The answer's there. It's on page five. The answer's there. So what do you, it, do you, is that a, from your side, Fiona, is, is that a maturity thing? Is that, a, is that a, them having trust in, in you as an advisor for them to own that, or you? And again, I think you said before about you having a clear understanding of what they're looking to get out of the the work. Is that is that right? Yes, I, I mean I think it definitely is a two way thing, because if you know where they're going as a business, you'll have some of that thinking as you're looking at the data. So I think that's one thing. The other is that they do need to to trust you. Sometimes some of the the best insights come out of um, work where the client goes, oh, yes, do you know, I've kind of known that, but I've never had it presented quite so starkly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember a, a, a time when we were, we were working for, um, for Sky in, in the UK, and we were evaluating the launch of Sky Atlantic, which is HBO, basically, they were launching in the UK. 
And um, they had some amazing adverts out with Dustin Hoffman. Beautiful ads, you know, absolutely amazing. People loved them. Except that what we were getting back in real time was that the Sky customers were seeing it over and over and over again. And so we went back and said, look, you know, it wasn't like they didn't like it, but they're just seeing it too many times. And we heard, and they said, oh, do you know, what's happening is we brief our media agency to go out through all the normal channels. Mm. But, of course, we own channels, too, because we're Sky. And so we're putting them out on our channels, and we're not looking at the two plans together. So our customers are getting many more experiences than, you know, than the general population. We really must look at it. And therefore, they'd always kind of known that, but they'd never really seen it. And that was the thing that was enabling them to trigger a change, which got got their media agency and their internal media people speaking together to get a joint plan. Yeah, that's interesting. Before we got started, we were talking about, uh, had a little bit of a chat about your business and just disruption generally that often or often or even almost always disruption of a sector comes from out from outside of the the category not within it um, and that almost builds me into like for, from a good researcher perspective or advisor perspective they're almost taking that external perspective they're looking at the the business from an outsider's perspective to say how can we disrupt or how can we we change because when when you're so close to it, you you can't see the the forest for the or the, the trees for the forest or the forest for the trees. Um, is that is that right? So you need to have that almost the, that that outside perspective is such a critical one to help decision makers move forward. I I would say that that is very much the role of agencies and consultants in relation to clients. I think they can provide that external perspective. They can provide a, a, a breadth of understanding. So. If you're in the airline industry, maybe you're interested in the hotel industry, you know, in terms of what other people are doing. If you're uh, a more traditional retailer, maybe you're interested in what online retailers are doing. So I definitely think that um, uh, that's part of the role of of the agency. Um, I was fascinated speaking to a global head of Insight recently that, that this particular client had included bravery within their mission for CMI because they felt that they had a, a, a role to be the customer's voice, mm. to be a bit provocative with their organization. And this came up because this particular person was a judge for the Ginny Valentine Badge of Courage Awards, which is something that um, I set up a, about six years ago. Um, and Bravery isn't something that's been associated with our industry in the past because it's all about being safe, making sure that we don't make mistakes. Um, But actually, I was really encouraged to hear that because I do think that um, as an industry, we need to be representing people, their voice, Mm. and we need to be provocative. And those views need to be heard in organizations where it's so easy to just have a a more blinkered perspective. Yeah, that's right. in the nicest possible way, going to war over the customer. Is that right? Being able to stand up for... Yes. I think that's a powerful thing about what we do is that, and we'll often say it when we're introducing focus groups or, or the likes, uh, that we go back and advise clients a tiny bit based on what we think, but 99% of it's based on what you guys think. So it's, a, it's quite empowering to be able to do that and use that rather than having an opinion. It, it's actually a, it's an evidence-based opinion and, and being willing to have that friction to drive that 
change, I think, is, is quite important. What about the idea of the, the importance in innovation, whether it's for researchers or other advisors or even internal teams, of having a beginner's mind? So the idea of being able to look at data or a situation or a category with a fresh perspective? I think that's... I think that's absolutely critical. And one of the things I love when we have new people coming in is when they look at the data that we have differently. Um, and we have had uh, Andy Dexter is working with us in the UK. He's uh, had many businesses, um, uh, fantastic businesses in the past. Um, and he's looked at our data with a cultural lens. Um, and he's recoded that data. Um, and we put it through machine learning. So he has um, a business interest in a company called Signoy. And we've looked at the topics that are coming out of this data. And, of course, we know how positive and persuasive they are. We know which brands they're for. We know which touch points they're for. But then we can start to see, okay, so what are the conversations that are coming out that are, and the topics that are most positive mm. across the whole data set? Um, so somebody coming in with fresh eyes mm. can totally transform how you look at the same data set. Yeah. One discussion that I've heard going around is that the idea of having, even from a research side, of having the data and um, almost having it so it's more open source data, so obviously de-identified, but being able to share that with multiple data analysts be able to look at it from different perspectives and then find the answer rather than having in a project one statistician or one analyst. What's your thinking on that, of being able to more openly share and analyse and look at, look at the data? That's such a, an interesting question because I wrote that down yesterday <laughs> because I love that idea. And it's what I want to explore because um, I really like the idea of people being able to look at, well, particularly our data. It's a unique data source. I, I really love that. Uh, I need to kind of try and work out how that works out with the business model as a privately owned company mm -hmm. where we need to, uh, we, you know, we need, we need to pay our way. Um, but in essence, I've always wanted to help the industry, help people create more experiences that grow mm. brands, people and society. And if getting our data out there will do that, I just need to find a way of monetizing it sufficiently yeah. to, to it do It is fascinating. That. I, there's, there's a few, I can't remember the names of the, the competitions, but there's a lot of competitions out there, or a number of competitions out there where they, they release data. And it's almost like you, if you can solve, solve the problem or the issue, there's a, a rather hefty often in the hundreds of thousands of dollars in prize money. You're thinking, and it's that where maybe 10 years ago that wasn't really a thing, but in the last few years that idea of having data scientists around the world freelancing, they can sit in, the, they sit in their dining room with a computer and, and help solve problems. I think it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating one. And, and, and look, just looking at research and just the amount of data out there, it's certainly one of the areas of that we don't need more data, we just need greater ability to be able to analyse and get, gain insights from the data we've got yes. in many ways. Uh, I mean, we've always encouraged um, academic uh, institutions and students to use our data. Yeah. So we've always done that. And I've you know, always been happy to, um, to release that. I think the, the, when you asked at the beginning how we've changed, one of the other things where, where we've changed is that in our business model, uh, when we started, we were very much working for an individual client 
we've now just launched um, a subscription model. So the data is ours. That makes a difference. Um, Clearly, we couldn't be releasing a client's data. Mm. Um, But if the data is our data, that means that we can release that Mm -hmm. data. What do you see as the big trends, the... the, um the innovations that are blowing your mind or you're really excited about within, within your business or, or out there in Insight world? I think one of the trends that I'm noticing, which I think is quite exciting, is um, a move away from a brand tracking survey to a way of collecting data that will guide the brand and how you can combine those data sources and use those data sources and get more always-on information to help you to take decisions when you need those decisions. So I think that's, and, and, and that's enabled by loads of different trends that are coming in. It's social media, it's artificial intelligence, it's technology, it's automation. You know, there are many, many of those different aspects that come in. But I think it's those co- the combination of these new approaches um, is enabling us to think differently. Mm. And that's perhaps what we need to be doing. I mean, th- what I'm going to be talking about this afternoon is um, it's an approach that we're using uh, where we're putting cameras into display material and capturing um, uh, the number of faces that are seen, so it's counting faces and the expressions and that kind of thing. It's not videoing people, so it's not capturing private information. Um, but when we've spoken to clients, of course, there are lots of tech companies and we're working with a tech partner. But our clients are saying, I get lots of tech partners coming to me, but that doesn't help answer the business question. And it's this thinking bit. And mm. that's where I think our industry can offer value because what we can do is we take that data, we look at that data in relation to sales, in relation to other data sources. It could be the weather or footfall or other kinds of things. And we can contextualize that, use experimental design. We can use some of the techniques that we understand as market researchers in order to help answer the client's business question. Mm. That's not something the tech does. Yeah. Okay, that's great. We started off with you as a, a young girl back in the UK. Uh, what would be your suggestions for young people moving forward? That could be young people at school or at uni or young, young professionals. What, what, do you, what do you think are the, the key things are to having a successful career, a successful life, looking back? I think I was very lucky to be encouraged to follow what I loved. And I think I would encourage people to do that but to try and connect what they love with the opportunities that they can see um so i think that's i think that's one thing i do think it's quite tough for young people um to be getting a job and uh you know um with with the current kind of situation and things aren't certain um but i do think what young people like is is they're looking for experiences themselves and I think that's a good thing Um, they should they should embrace those experiences whatever they are, they aren't going to be forever it's not like they need a job forever but if there's something that they're doing 
they should use it. Uh, and I remember my, my nephew, actually, he, he got his own job at the local newsagent <laughs> when he was quite young because he wanted a little mm. bit of extra pocket money. And the way he described it to me, he said, I know everybody in the village and I know exactly what they like <laughs> and I can help them. And he had so much that he got out of standing behind, uh, you know, the, 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 the till and taking the money for the newspaper. And I, and I thought, well, that's, that's good. He's now working for it the BBC. It wasn't just the job. It was no. the, the experience of, of that job and what he was, was gaining from that. Yeah. Yes. And, and I saw it later. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, he started his first proper job at the BBC yeah. in, in, in London. And um, so it was, you know, even little experiences. It could be a, a, a waitressing experience. Um, uh, but all of those, or it could be um, doing something within the university. Use those experiences. Think yeah. about those experiences. So not necessarily having a big dream in the future and waiting to get to that big dream. It's, it's, it's a step to get to that, those little experiences, those um, following your passions, following the things you love. Yeah, and, and, and make, the most, make the most of them. I think having the big dream is good. I, I love the um, quote, I don't know if it was apocryphal, from... Um, when uh, President Kennedy was going around um, uh, Canaveral, and um, uh, he asked somebody who was doing the sweeping what, what you know what he was doing, and he said, "Getting a man on the moon, Mr. President." Yeah. Not I'm sweeping. Yeah. So I do think it's important for people to know if they if they can where they're going or what they want to try and do, um, but make the most of all those opportunities along the way. In That's that great. Thank you so much, Fiona. How can people find you and Mesh on social media or websites, etc.? They can find me on um, Twitter at Fiona Mesh, um, and I'm also on LinkedIn. We have a Mesh website, which is meshexperience.com, um, and we obviously have other. Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, etc. in terms of uh, social media. And we'd be delighted if anybody wanted to follow us or to get in contact. Okay. Thank you so much, Fiona. All the best. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Hey, Jason here to say goodbye. Until next time, please subscribe to Real People via iTunes, your favourite podcast platform. While you are there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday, same time, emails on everything human-centered, customer focus, entrepreneurialism and thinking different, popular articles by me, the Square Holes team, and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen, Christy Anthony and Suet Anantula, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list. You can also follow me, Jason Dunstone, on Twitter or your favorite social media. Thank you for listening. Hooray. Right.